This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Do the governing Ford PCs have the best interest of Ontario residents, business owners, and long-term care residents in mind during the pandemic? Critics say the premier and his ministers have not been responsibly allocating funds to the people who need it most. And Doug Ford himself admits only a fraction of $600 million for small business owners has been doled out, primarily, he says, because of a lack of applications in the early days of the program, which began last month. Then there is the report by the Financial Accountability Officer indicating the government was sitting on $12 billion in COVID-19 contingency funding as recently as September 30th. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. I was heartened that, that it was the Premier who was one of the first ones to put together a vaccine task force uh, led by, uh, by uh, Rick Hillier. That, that obviously focuses on long-term care uh, facilities as one of the first groups of, of, of people to uh, cohorts to get the vaccine, which is right, We're both long-term care um, uh, patients and also, and also support workers. And I think that's smart. It is becoming increasingly clear that it's not going to be possible to get that vi- uh, Pfizer vaccine to long-term care. It's only going to be for people who can get to larger facilities. But, yeah, and, but and I, I also, digress. I also, know too, I also know too, Libby, that the the, the Northwest Territories are also saying that they don't want the Pfizer vaccine because right. it's too complicated and too, uh, uh, not only too complicated from a storage perspective, but also from a dispensing perspective. And that's a problem. So I think Moderna and others are, are hoping to be able to come right behind them and, and use them. But nonetheless, I think that's the issue. There's never enough money uh, to be able to fix this, this problem. But I think that the government is trying to do their best by spending money and by doing what they can, uh, especially when it comes to long-term care facilities. Uh, Charles, it, ultimately, um, when this is all over, will will the government be hurt by a perception um, and a reality, in my opinion, of a lack of action in long-term care when they had time to prepare? And when they had $12 billion that wasn't allocated by the end of the second quarter, at least according to the, the government's financial accountability office. Um, and and that, that may be the bigger political problem for the government, the sense that they were not making investments over the summer in the kinds of areas that would have made life a lot more tolerable and might even have saved lives as we enter into the, the second wave of the pandemic or now that we feel the, the full brunt of the second wave of the pandemic. And that's a bigger problem because what's, what's the money for? Why are you, why are you not spending this money in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, you've got a federal government that is clear, clearly carrying the brunt of the load in terms of its spending, spending hundreds of billions of dollars. And so why is the provincial government squirreling away this money? Um, and the obvious answer is because with an election in 2022, if not sooner, um, you know, they, they want to be able to point to the balance sheet and say, hey, look what great financial managers we are. And that is 
seriously flawed mixed messaging in terms of where the government's priorities are. Karen, what is your view about the importance of that situation? And also, yesterday, the Auditor General pointed out that uh, the regulation regime for retirement homes, which is different, is is lax. And also, she she, uh, underscored what we all know and have known for ages is that a lot of people in retirement homes really should be in long-term care for the care they need, but there's no space for them. Yeah, and I, I think that when the dust settles and families reflect, um, I, I think that there will be a combination of frustration around not preparing, but also, um, more personally speaking, the fact that families were shut out of those facilities for a long, long time. And they, it was you know, it was clear that shutting us out wasn't going to have an impact on whether the virus came back into the facility. And so they didn't take the steps to protect the staff. They kept the families away from their loved ones. The families were, you know, people were aging in place and and isolated from their families. And the long-term impacts of that isolation are still, we're we're still learning about. So I think that's where families are really going to have something to say to the government about, you know, you did all these things, you spent all this money, rightly or wrongly, you kept me from my loved ones, my loved ones still got sick, or even worse, they, they just suffered a lonely, lonely existence for a year and deteriorated to the point that, you know, their dementia increased. And so that's where I think when the dust settles, families are going to have the issue with the government and the government is going to have to have a really good response because it, it has been intolerable for many families to not be able to see their loved ones during uh- this time. Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Fightback's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. Fightback spoke directly with the financial accountability officer about his report, which reveals the provincial PCs had $12 billion in unspent reserve funds at the end of September. Premier Doug Ford says most of that money has actually been allocated, and he's saving the rest for emergency situations. But critics argue we're in an emergency situation with the pandemic. Here is the best of Libby's conversation on Wednesday with Ontario's FAO, Peter Weltman. So some of the money did come from the federal government, but it's impossible at this point to determine exactly which money came from the feds. What happens technically is when the money gets transferred to the province, it gets put into the province's you know, notional bank account, if you will, and then reallocated to various programs and funds. Is that kosher, that they take the money to offset the effects and then, you know, leave it in the bank? Well, you know, the, 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 is it kosher? Uh, I guess that, that all depends. It's, it's not Hanukkah guilt just yet. Maybe in a couple of days it will be. But, okay. Um, the um, uh, the funds that, that, that are sitting in the bank, if you will, and that, it's important to remember that was at the end of September. So it was a second quarter report. And I was listening to the intro that you gave, and you know, they have the two sides, right? Well, you're sitting on all this money, and the premier says, well, no, we've allocated it. And that's exactly what this report is supposed to do. It's supposed to help people answer, ask good questions of the government. So while at the end of, at the end of September, we were showing $12 billion in the three contingency funds, and the premier said, well, no, no, those have all been allocated since then. And that's entirely possible. And we won't know until we come out with our next quarterly report, uh, which will probably happen in January. And we'll have the spending numbers as of uh, the end of December. 
one of the things that's also come up throughout this whole thing is, uh, quote, the question of how the funds flow. So as an example, it was way back, I think in May, that it was announced that the frontline healthcare workers would get a top up in their pay. And this money was coming from the federal government. And then months later, there were all kinds of people who were saying, hey, we haven't got our money yet. And then the province would say, hey, the federal government is slow in, quote, flowing the funds. You know, that's the beauty of living in a federation. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sorry to say, but that is just typical. That happens all the time with all kinds of of federal provincial transfers. So the money supposed to come. So technically what happens is that there will be some sort of transfer agreement signed between both levels of government, which will stipulate until that is signed, no money flows. And then once that is signed, in some respects, it could act as a bit of a line of credit, if you will. So the province can go ahead and spend money if they want to, knowing that the feds will, you know, will be good for it. Uh, or the money flows right away into the provinces, like I said, into the province's bank account. And the province takes that money and puts it into its own. It still needs to get authority to spend it just because it came from the federal government. doesn't mean it can go off and, and spend the money. It still needs to get legislative approval to actually spend the money. And then you get another good question. What does allocated mean when you allocate money versus spend money? So the money is, 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 let's say it's put into these reserve funds. So the legislative branch says, yes, here's your $175 billion spending budget. Here's where you're planning to spend the money. We approve it. The government can go ahead and start to spend that money. <clears throat> but if it's sitting in a reserve fund, it's waiting to be allocated to a program to be spent. So there could be another delay there, too. And that's the other neat thing about our report is we also show how far are we along in the year and how far are we along in the spending plan. So we're 50 percent of the way through the year. And our report shows we're not quite 50 percent of the way through the spending. We're about 48 percent of the way through the spending. And that's pretty normal. We'll see what Q3 brings. Peter Weltman, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think this is terrific. And keep an eye out for our Q3 report, because again, while we, you know, we, our objective is to provide legitimate, authoritative, nonpartisan, you know, analysis to MPPs in sparking a discussion. And this is how you hold the government to account is by asking these exactly these sorts of questions and seeing what sort of answers you get. And uh, I think it's fascinating that up until a year and a half ago, people were quite comfortable to wait for a year and a half before they found out how the money was being spent. And now people want to know every week. So (laughs) it's a good thing. Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer, Peter Weltman. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, we hear from the former chair of the Ontario Greenbelt Council himself and why he stepped down. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. David Crombie was the chair of Ontario's Greenbelt Council, but he quit in protest last weekend over what he calls fundamental differences of opinion on the province's Greenbelt policy direction. Six members of the council followed his lead and also quit. 
Crombie was once known as the tiny perfect mayor of Toronto and was also a federal progressive conservative cabinet minister. Crombie has warned the governing Ford PCs if they don't back down on changes, which he says will gut environmental protections in the province, they're going to find a battle on their hands. Ford's Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark so far has shown no signs of backing down. David Crombie joined Libby Snymer on Wednesday with his take on the situation. It wasn't just the Greenbelt. It was actually the core of the problem here uh, is that it was brought, uh, amendments brought to the Conservation Authorities Act. Conservation Authority uh, is the body that is charged uh, with the environmental care of our river valleys and watersheds. And, and it, therefore, they concern themselves with things like water quality, groundwater, et cetera. So I could go on. Everybody knows their work. There are 36 of them across the province, and they all oppose the legislation that the government's bringing forward, because what it does is reduce their ability to carry out their job. We've been hearing about these uh, zoning overrides where uh, where the, the province can just override any other authority. Is, is that the problem? Well, that's part of it. Um, the, within the amendments to the legislation, which is now passed, um, it, within that legislation, there are procedural changes that they made that disarm the Conservation Authority from actually dealing with the land development industry in a balanced way. Uh, but along with that is what you just mentioned, and they're called ministerial zoning orders. They've used 38 municipal zoning orders across the province, more coming, this is a way in which you escape all public scrutiny and, and or significant public scrutiny. And certainly there's no appeal and no process following a ministerial zoning order. It's just done. Steve Clark, who is the municipal affairs minister, he says that the bill doesn't apply to the Green Belt. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, the Green Belt is not on some ice flow in the Arctic. It's connected to the rest of the province and all issues that are related to environmental concerns in the river valleys and watersheds go from one place to another. They're totally connected. So the idea that you can deal with water in one and not worry about it flowing into some other place, that's just silly. You know, know I'm reminded of of something that came up as a bit of a scandal during the election campaign when uh, the premier, before he was premier, was meeting with some developers and there was talk that they were going to allow some development right on the Green Belt. Yes, and they had to backtrack because people admire the Green Belt and want to keep it whole. But what is happening now is that they're not, close quote, touching the Green Belt, but they're going to drain it of its value by making sure that they're not having environmental care taken outside of the Green Belt. Now, what do you think the motivation is? Is it just that they're uh, maybe uh, too cozy with some developers who are supporters? I mean, what do you attribute it to? If you look at the, the comments that have been made by uh, many organizations across the province, and this is opposed by many of them, uh, you'll find that they, they have the same concern as I do, and that is whatever their intention, this sure opens up the opportunity for the development industry to get where it wants to go without having to worry about local concerns. To what do you ascribe their, their intentions? I don't know. You'll have to ask them. I, I've been around the public issues long enough to know that I, I like to stick to the issues and not to the people involved. Okay, David, is, is there a website or a way for uh, people who want to join your fight to do so? <laughs> They're just, we're just getting organized. Um, 
And there are people now we are going to we'll be having meetings over the next little while. Don't forget this was brought upon us in a, in a bill, as you mentioned, in a budget bill. Uh, it wasn't an environmental bill. And, and then on the last day, on the Friday before it was over, uh, the, the Friday was over, they backed up a truck and put in a whole bunch of other uh, <laughs> amendments which no one ever saw before. How so unusual. We're, we're digesting all of those. But we are, we are, there, there are many people who now say, we cannot let this stand. We just cannot let it stand. Everybody's concerned about COVID. And so uh, COVID sort of puts a blanket over what they're doing. But when that blanket comes off and people see what they were trying to do, they'll be appalled. David Crombie in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Turning now to the very encouraging, though not unexpected news, from Health Canada on Wednesday, the approval of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. The first shipment of 30,000 doses is expected to arrive in Canada tomorrow, following concerns in the UK last week about allergic reaction to the vaccine after two recipients in Britain experienced adverse effects. On the day we learned of Health Canada's approval, Libby was joined by Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Colin Furness, Infection Control Epidemiologist and an Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, Epidemiologist and Faculty Member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. It's welcome news. The vaccines uh, will play an essential role, particularly in protecting our nursing home populations and high-risk uh, populations such as uh, frontline healthcare workers. But I would caution that we should always not think that COVID vaccines should are going to be a magic bullet that'll end the pandemic. It's to be considered as one of the key pillars while we continue to make efforts to use smart physical distancing, masks, contact tracing, and most importantly, testing strategies. And that's driven by the clear recognition that for the vast majority of infected populations, self-isolation for two weeks will mostly end onward transmission to others. So vaccines are hopeful, but they're not going to be the only thing that we need to do. We still need to do the things that we've not done so well. Colin Furness, what's your reaction to this news? I don't think I could change a single word uh, of, of Dr. Ja. I, w- I guess I would just add that we need to divide our world into people who have agency, people who can isolate, people who can work from home, people who can make those choices, and those like people who are institutionalized in long-term care homes who cannot. So the vaccine will be most useful for people who don't have that agency, and that also includes essential workers, people who have occupational risk to COVID. So I am thrilled that we're going to be able to start protecting those folks and those folks first. And I would absolutely underscore what Dr. Jha had to say. We still need masks. We still need physical distancing. And certainly, above all, we need a smart testing strategy. That's something we still don't yet have. Colin Furness, you know, the, the vaccine, if you get one, it's, it's not an immediate bullet. Um, can you go through how long it takes to develop the immunity? 
So for this particular vaccine, I don't know, but the general sort of default rule of thumb is it takes your body about two weeks to start generating antibodies when it's when it responds to an infection. That seems to be the case with COVID. It's going to vary on an individual basis, but certainly when people get the flu shot, you should be told if you're not that you need to understand that you don't have protection for those first two weeks. So until I hear differently, I would say two weeks would be just about the right uh, the right margin there. I actually think I'll it's a month. I'll that by saying it's uh, it's a two dose vaccine, most um, the, the early RNA ones. So you get a primer and then 21 days later you get the boost. And people's side effects tend to be more of the, the 21 day. And then in that time period, you certainly don't have any immunity. And only a few weeks after the second dose will you start to get immunity. Let's bring in Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region Chief Medical Officer of Health. First of all, what's your reaction to the approval of the vaccine? Oh, very pleased about that. And, uh, you know, we have been making a lot of preparations uh, locally, right, to be able to distribute and to be able to administer it. And, uh, you know, with our hospital partners and with our physicians and pharmacists in the community, I, you know, we, we have every confidence with respect to getting it into people's arms as soon as possible. Um, and we work very closely with the ministry's tables and we take direction from the Ministry of Health for whom we are very grateful. I gather that some of the issue in the hospitals is because these hospitals are expecting accepting patients from outside the regions where, where the hospitals are, are under more pressure. Is that right? So I would say, I don't want to use the word only, but when we look at York Region residents in the hospitals, uh, there are 11. But when you actually look at the numbers of patients in ICU, and this is the ICU patients I'm referring to, uh, there are uh, double that numbering of York Region hospitals. So yes, they have had to take in patient, patients from across the GTA. This is part of the way that our healthcare system works. You know, we help each other out, and we're expected to help each other out. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with on this, Dr. Kurji? Uh, just a real appeal to the public to listen to the public health guidelines. We, we, we it'll take a number of months still before you know we all get vaccinated. So please listen to the public health guidelines and keep safe that way. Dr. Kareem Kurji, York Region's Chief Medical Officer of Health. Dr. Colin Furness, Infection Control Epidemiologist and Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto. And Dr. Prabhat Jha, Epidemiologist and Faculty Member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Dennis in Brampton phoned and said he's not surprised to hear from the financial accountability officer that the provincial Tories had failed to spend $12 billion in COVID-19 funding by the end of September. The fact that long-term care, there's been no money flow there. Uh, when the schools, there was all kinds of money promised. I can tell you there is no money gone uh, to the school that I can determine because I have, uh, I know people who are in the teaching system. There's no distancing. 
There are no nurses in the schools. There's no uh, HVAC upgrades. It's all been grandiose announcements with zero follow-through. And uh, it just makes me very angry. The federal government has had no problem getting money out to people when they needed it during the pandemic. So this idea that some or other this is all caught up in some kind of bureaucratic uh, snafu, it, it makes no sense to me. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Carol in Kingston, who was also angry after hearing the Ford PCs had not spent money intended to help Ontarians out during the COVID-19 crisis. From my perspective, when the government sends, the federal government sends money to Ontario in the middle of a pandemic that's for something specific, I don't think Ford should be putting it in his pocket for the next rainy day. He had all this time to get ready and do the thing for the long-term care, and he said way back then, whatever it takes. So I guess it took nothing, and that's why he did nothing. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.